So this is gonna sound like an Asian stereotype, but I love sushi. Like it is my favorite cuisine. Uh, and it might as well be because Chinese people say I don't look Chinese, they say I look Japanese. So it might as well be my favorite kind of food. Now growing up, uh, going to have sushi was like the treat. Like if anyone had a birthday, uh, we would go to a really nice Japanese restaurant, sit at the sushi bar, sit under the amazing uh, sushi chef, and just have great sushi. Now, I know not everyone's into sushi in Iowa, you know, and sometimes even if you like sushi, you just don't trust any sushi joint in Iowa because it's like, come on now, the oceans are very far away. Um, but it is one of my favorite things. Uh, my other favorite thing is steak, so I was very happy to move to Iowa for just really good, cheap steak. Yay, fairway, best meat in town. Um, but back to sushi, because that's more important. Uh, sushi, so when I moved here, of course I had to find out where the best sushi in town was. And so, not that I've visited every place, but I've decided so far, the best sushi in town is Sushi Ya in North Liberty. Thank you, Shunks, for introducing us to Sushi Ya. If you haven't tried it and you like sushi, you should go to Sushi Ya in North Liberty. I mean, I am happy to sing the praises of Sushi Ya to anyone who would listen. I'll bring it up even when no one's really interested in it. I'll just bring it into conversations even though that's not what we're talking about because everyone should know where the best sushi is. And I'm not a sushi snob, actually. Like, I'll eat cheap sushi. I don't care. Now, the only thing I won't eat is pre-made sushi, and none of you should eat pre-made sushi. It's not okay, all right? The rice is very bad. It just can't, they just can't, they can't make it good, right? So don't eat pre-made sushi, but do go to Sushi Ya in North Liberty if you're looking for really good sushi. Now here's the thing, right? When we love something, we're happy to talk about it, bring it up, share it with people, sing its praises, give testimonials, go into Yelp and type, ah, oh, best sushi place ever because that's just natural, like it just comes out of us. We wanna share the joy with everyone. And it's really the same thing with our faith, right? If it's something so silly as sushi, okay, it's really not silly, but okay, something as silly as sushi, we would sing praises about, then surely our faith, which is so much more important than sushi, is something worth talking about, sharing about, talking about what difference it makes in our life and sharing about the goodness of God, the love and peace and forgiveness and grace and joy that we receive through our relationship with God. In today's passage, Jesus says he's the great physician for those who are sick and that he's come to call the sick and not the righteous. Again, a very well-known passage. And he's really saying if we Christians recognize that we are the sick that have been healed by the great physician, then it should be something that we want to go share with those people around us to share this great news of this relationship with God that brings us such great joy and freedom. And in fact, you know, the one we're looking at today in Matthew is about, this, this text comes from uh, the text where Matthew is called as a disciple of Jesus. And we're gonna see today, just this main point, that Jesus calls the sick, and that's us, and therefore let's share the gospel with the sick. Jesus calls the sick, and that's us, so let's go share the gospel with the sick. Now, a little bit of context for Matthew, because actually, again, this, this uh, passage, this story is told several times in, the three, in three gospels, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And actually, I preached on the Luke version 
about over a year ago. And, and this is interesting because I wanted to come at it at a slightly different angle because this is Matthew writing about his own coming to Jesus, his own deciding to follow Jesus, and also this interaction that Jesus has where he says, again, these famous words of, he's come not for the righteous but for the sick. And it's, 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 it's important to know that this text comes in a place in Jesus' ministry where he's really trying to make known his power as the Messiah. It comes right after his healing of the paralytic. And Jesus is just now sharing in word uh, the gospel message. And again, we're going to hear it from Jesus' perspective, I mean, from Matthew's perspective. So let's dive in here to the text. So starting in verse 9, we're just going to go through it a few verses at a time. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So we see here just this, this quick verse that shows us how Matthew came to faith in Christ. Now, it was common in those times that there was essentially segregation between Gentiles and Jews and tax collectors. Um, Jewish tax collectors would not really have been accepted by, by Jews or by Gentiles. Jews would have seen them essentially as traitors because they were um, serving a Roman occupier and, and perhaps also as unclean because they weren't following the Jewish ritual laws. Gentiles would also not have really wanted to hang out with the tax collectors, probably because just everyone hates the tax man, but also because uh, they, they would have thought them too Jewish. And tax collectors were seen as extortionists, essentially. And the way the system worked, just very briefly, is you know someone who earned large pieces of land, perhaps farmland, would have a chief tax collector who was in charge of that area to gather taxes for the Roman Empire. These chief tax collectors would then hire out to tax collectors, essentially to set up a booth in key locations, like on key highways, key roadways, and just collect taxes for goods that are going through. Now, of course, what happens in the system is that everyone gets their cut along the way. And so for the person being taxed, it ends up being pretty steep in that sense. And they're really, uh, the tax collectors are benefiting from it as a result. And in this particular situation, we see Matthew again, he set up a tax booth and he's taxing goods on this international highway between Syria and Egypt. Now, it's interesting as we read this call of Matthew to faith and to following Jesus, because it seems like it didn't take much for Matthew to come to faith. And we have to understand that he is, he's leaving behind a lucrative lifestyle. He is not a poor man. He's made a good amount of money extorting taxes from people and taking his cut along the way. And perhaps Matthew was ready to leave this lifestyle of extorting people behind. Perhaps he was done with feeling ostracized from most everyone because everyone hates the tax collector. And perhaps he was wrestling with guilt himself of living this life of hurting people for his own gain. And most likely, because he's a tax collector setting up booth on a major road, he hears stories. He's probably heard stories of what Jesus has done. He's heard stories of Jesus' healing. He's heard stories of Jesus' teaching. He is a Jew after all. Maybe he's being ostracized by the Jewish community, but at the same time, he is interested. And who is this person who says they are the Messiah? And it's interesting how he tells this story, right? Because... He really doesn't add a lot of detail in the telling of his own testimony, essentially. 
Now, one thing we should know about Matthew is, given what he did, he would have been experienced in writing. He would have been experienced in taking records. Uh, he probably was well-versed in more than one language. So he was a great asset, really, to Jesus and the rest of the disciples. He brought a skill set that the fishermen, for instance, didn't have. And it's interesting, because God used him after he came to Christ, right? He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It is a very um, detailed Gospel as well. And really, the redemption story we hear from Matthew is this. Here, this formerly traitorous Jew now believes in and follows the promised Messiah, then writes the best gospel out of the four in terms of explaining how Jesus is the one who fulfilled the Jewish faith. And that's a great redemption story for any person. And again, he's, he's very brief in the way he tells a story. There's very little detail. It seems like he's being very humble and modest despite the sacrifice of leaving behind a lucrative lifestyle. And we, in fact, have no record in anywhere in the scripture of Matthew speaking. And there's really only two others I can think of uh, out of the disciples closest to Jesus who we have no record of them saying anything. And of course, someone like Peter, we have a lot of record of his words. And I point this out to say, maybe you can relate to Matthew a little bit. Maybe you feel like the humble, modest person who really has very little to say, doesn't like the spotlight on them, and yet you know Jesus. You've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you want to be used by Jesus to bring the joy and hope and grace and love of Christ to others. And we see Matthew is about to do that in his own way. So let's move on to verse 10. Verse 10 says this, And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. We see here, essentially, Matthew's brought together his tax collector and sinner friends to have a party with Jesus. And it's interesting because in this particular telling, Matthew's own telling, we don't know that it's at his house. It just says, in the house. But in Luke's account, we know it is Matthew who is throwing this party. He's throwing this banquet for Jesus and for his friends, and he's, he's showing this hospitality to others. He's showing this gratitude to Jesus for saving him, for changing his life. And he wants to be able for his friends to meet Jesus. And uh, we look at this word sinners in this text, sinners, I bet each and every one of you has like a slightly different connotation that comes to your mind when you hear the word sinner. But in those times, when, we, when the word sinner was used, it was really referring to people who were guilty of publicly known sin or others who were really not trying at all to keep the strict requirements of the Pharisees' laws specifically. And so really, they were treated as not very good Jews or overtly sinning um, in the community. And so they were ones who were certainly breaking these religious laws and, again, maybe even shunned by the Pharisees. Now, it's interesting for Matthew here, right? Because we see that for Matthew, he shows that following Jesus means and involves a life change. Matthew has left behind 
his life as a tax collector. And it is assumed in here that he has done so. And he's, it's kind of like he's throwing a going away party. I'm going away from tax collecting. Let's have a big party to say farewell. And again, he's brought Jesus to this party of his because he wants his friends, his tax collector's friends, his other sinner friends, because the only people who would hang out with him were the sinners and the tax collectors. He wanted his friends to know this Jesus who he believed to be the Messiah, the one who had changed his life. And so, again, he's throwing this party. He's clearly not cutting off friendships with these sinners and tax collector friends. But at the same time, it's important for us to to hear this because I think so often in Christian culture, we think or are taught explicitly that if we're to become a Christian, then we need to leave these sinner friends behind. So following Jesus does involve a life change, but following Jesus does not involve disowning your non-Christian friends. Matthew knew that Jesus came to seek and save sinners, and Matthew was following in his master's footsteps by throwing this big party and saying, everyone, come and meet this Jesus who has changed my life. Matthew's not condescendingly looking down on his friends. He knows He is from the same background. He has done the same things. He has been ostracized in the same way. And he knows that he is a sinner too, but is saved by grace, by faith in Christ. Now, it's interesting. When we talk about sharing faith, often what we go to is we think of arguing with people or giving our testimony or doing apologetics. And all those things are good things. But Matthew does something very simple here. He throws a party, and he essentially says, come and see for yourself. Come and meet Jesus. And it's interesting because the apostle John in his gospel, early on in his gospel, has several passages that emphasize this come and see way of sharing faith. In John 1, 3, 9, two of John's disciples uh, come to Jesus, and they ask him, you know, about, Jesus, about himself. And Jesus tells them, come, and you will see. He invites John's disciples to come along and see for themselves who he is and what he is doing. In John 1, 47, Philip tells Nathaniel, who is skeptical of this Jesus, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip simply says, he doesn't engage into some like amazing argument back and forth with him. He just says, come and see, come and see for yourself. And then in John 4, 29, when Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan woman, what she does after she comes to faith in Christ is she tells everyone who would listen, come and see the man who has told me all that I ever did. Now for us living in today, we don't get to just tell our friends, come and see Jesus, literally, right? Like Jesus is not like physically here for us to tell people to come and see him. But what Jesus says to us, and actually it's great that Carrie referenced it, Jesus says when two or more gather in his name, I am there with them. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit fills us as individuals and as the people of God. So Jesus is here. God is here. And it says that there's something powerful 
when there's more than one Christian, when two or more gather, that Jesus can be revealed in a way that perhaps just one Christian couldn't. So there's great power to just saying the church, the people of God, when two or three Christians go out in his name, that Jesus is present and people can come and see who this Jesus is. And it could be come and see for yourself what church is like. It could be come and see and hang out with my Christian friends. It could be come and see, and this happened this, this, you know, this past summer, come and see this church softball league. I know it sounds kind of weird and you may not want to be around all these Christians, but just come and see, right? And it's funny, right? Because we know, we, know, we all know this. It is so dehumanizing when we just make straw men of people we don't agree with because then it's just easy to dismiss their arguments. And we should know that that's done to Christians as well. And so the most powerful thing to work against that is simply to say to people, come and see. We're really not as weird and as offensive as you think we are. We're just normal people, yes, with different views than you on faith and God and other things, but just normal people who believe in God and believe in this Jesus and follow him. Come and see for yourself what it means to follow Jesus. And as we do that, maybe Jesus will open people's eyes to see, oh, okay, all that I thought was true about Christians and the Christian faith in Christ is actually not very accurate. And then, you know, they'll have to wrestle with what they believe about it and whether they believe that Jesus is God. But our hope, of course, is that they come to see that Jesus is the one who brings hope and meaning in life. As Augustine said, the church is not a hotel for sinners, but a hospital for sinners. I'm sorry, it's not a hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Augustine's referencing this text of how Jesus came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. It reminds me of an interaction I had this summer. I was back in Durham, North Carolina, visiting my wife's family, and I got to catch up with some of the people I knew from the church that I served at there. And one of the guys was a guy I had the privilege of seeing come to faith, and we were just catching up at his place. And he reminded me that when he, when he became a Christian, that I said to him, and I don't really remember saying this, but I can imagine myself saying this. He said, I, I, told, him, I told him very clearly, apparently, I was like, like, just because you've become a Christian now doesn't mean you should leave all your non-Christian friends behind. Like, don't go into Christian bubble world. Like, show your, your friends who don't believe in Christ that you still care about them, that you're still friends with them. And then maybe you won't go out and do the same things that you used to do together, but you can still show that you like them, that you care about them, that you want the best for them. And he said that it was, it was really important for him in his coming to Christ because he thought somehow that coming to Christ meant having to give up all his non-Christian friends. And I, was, and I was trying to say to him, like, it's really the very opposite. Stay connected to those friends. Share God's love with your friends in the most natural, organic way you can just by saying, just by sharing what's going on in your life, how God has changed your life as you start following him. And Matthew is doing the same thing here in this account. He's simply saying to his friends, come and see this Jesus. Come and see this faith and how it's changed me. 
Jesus, in the end, is, is not interested in just people being religious. He's interested not in people going through the motions of religion. He's interested in people having a relationship with him. And that is what we want to show people. That is what we want people to come and see, is that the core of our faith is this relationship with God that brings joy and faith and hope. But let's see how the the Pharisees respond to Jesus' message. Verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's almost amusing to us today, but in those times, it just would have been very normal. This would have been a very normal question. You're not supposed to hang out with the tax collectors. You're not supposed to hang out with the sinners. They're people of ill repute. No one hangs out with those people, right? But they're saying, like, why do you hang out with these people? They're gross. They're unclean. They're sinners. Why are you following this Jesus dude? He's leading you astray. This is not the way of God. But it's such irony, right? And so I don't know, you know, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard a lot about the Pharisees and don't be like a Pharisee. But let me give you a definition of Pharisee. Uh, not written by me. A layman's fellowship, popular with the common people and connected. I'm going to say that. A layman's fellowship, popular with the common people and connected to local synagogues, chiefly characterized by adherence to extensive extra-biblical traditions. And these Pharisees considered themselves healthy, clean, because of their devoted adherence to these laws and therefore blind to their own spiritual sickness. I mean, really, in short, the Pharisees were the best rule followers ever, right? They're the goody two-shoes. They're such goody two-shoes, they're making up new rules to make sure that they're even holier, that making sure that they're holier than anyone else and that everyone else tried to be this holy before God. And they did this in order to feel certain that they were right with God. They added more and more rules to get this feeling that they're right with God. You may be or have been from a Christian tradition where that's what it felt like, where it felt like, man, there's a lot of extra rules that don't seem to be in the Bible. And it seems like I have, there's this pressure to follow them so that I can feel like I'm all right with Jesus that Jesus still likes me and loves me. And Jesus is speaking against that. Rule following and rule making as a way to be made right with God. And these Pharisees knew very well how to shame people into motivating them to follow these rules. Right? That's really what they're doing here. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're trying to motivate them to law adherence, these extra laws that they've made through shame. But Jesus teaches us that we're not to be motivated by shame, but by love. And so Jesus responds in verse 12. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Really, the Pharisees of all people, because really they were very big on God's holiness, they should have recognized more than anyone 
the need of sinners for the great physician. And yet here they are telling the sinners, the tax collectors, that people shouldn't be near the great physician because of this adherence to holiness. Jesus' message of freedom threatened the Pharisees' way of life. And Jesus here is challenging all of our tendency of this guilt by association. Don't hang out with those people. If you hang out with those people, that means you affirm what they believe in, you condone what they're doing, that in fact you're participating in what they're doing. And Jesus says, that's not how I work. I'll hang out with anyone because I come to seek and save sinners. I've come to bring the message of the gospel to all who have ears to hear. And so for us as Christians, we bring Christ with us wherever we go. That's what it means to be one with God. Wherever we go, we bring Christ with us because of our faith in him. And so we do that with the hope that people will come and see that Jesus is God, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really does bring hope and salvation in the way that he has promised. This come and see could be a formal thing like church. It could be a casual thing like just a group of Christian friends gathered and hanging out with others. And here Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, which you heard read earlier, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrifice is just representative of the whole Jewish sacrificial system. And the word here translated mercy is the Hebrew word hesed, this rich covenantal word of God's commitment to love his people to the very point of willing to give up his life. He is calling, God is calling, Jesus is calling for that kind of mercy, that kind of love. And so like Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, followers of Christ, us, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we can't just go through the motions of our spiritual practices. We have to love God and love others in a genuine way, in the way that God has demonstrated through Jesus. Calls us to bring real, practical, merciful love to those in need. And note, as compared to last week when we talked about the marginalized, these are not the poor and the needy of last week. These tax collectors are rich people in comparison to most everyone else. But Jesus says they need the gospel too. They need the message of Christ too. They need relationship with God too. They need the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the joy of Christ. And so when Jesus says he is calling those who are sick, calling those who are sinners, what does it mean? It really, again, this is going to sound really straightforward, but he's just saying, I'm calling you to a relationship with me. I'm calling you to recognize that I am Lord and Savior. I'm calling you to recognize that you have a need for me because of your brokenness. He is calling us to trust in him, in his sacrifice, in his resurrection, to deliver us from our tendency to be fooled by just playing religious games, going through the motions, the way in which we want to follow along with the Pharisees' way of rule-making and rule-following as opposed to just trusting and depending on Jesus. Here's the thing. I think this is one way to know the sign of a false religion. And I say false religion very, very broadly. Any false 
religion does this, is that it insists on making more and more burdensome rules that we cannot follow. Any false religion will tend to create more and more rules that we cannot follow. This happens in fundamental Christian backgrounds. This happens in liberal backgrounds. It's just a different kinds of rules. But they point to this ever-narrowing definition of rules that we feel more and more, I can't keep up with this. I can't keep up with this righteousness that you've defined for me. And Jesus is just like saying, that's correct. That's why I came. I knew all along you couldn't follow even true laws that are from God. Not to say made up laws by humans. Jesus calls to set us free, not to weigh us down with ever increasing laws. And yet we struggle because we are always so tempted towards self-sufficiency, self-dependence, self-righteousness as a result, just like the Pharisees. And when that happens, we begin to lose an appreciation for what Christ has done for us. And when we have lost an appreciation for what Christ has done for us, then why would we have anything to share with those people around us? I want to just list a few things here of what happens when when we have too much self-sufficiency in us. Too much self-sufficiency feeds perfectionism and a judgmental attitude. Too much self-sufficiency leads to loneliness because you're managing life by yourself. Too much self-sufficiency self-sufficiency destroys trust. Trust in God, trust with others. It's ironic, right? Because often we have become self-sufficient because someone important in our life has disappointed us. And so we decide, I'm just going to depend on myself. But then when we act in such a self-sufficient way, what we communicate unintentionally usually to all the people around us is, I got it. I don't need your help. And that means trust is very difficult to come by. Too much self-sufficiency means depriving others the opportunity to serve you, the opportunity for them to bring their complementary gifts into your life. Too much self-sufficiency hurts intimacy with God and with others. Too much self-sufficiency puts us above God. When we tell God, God, again, I got this. I don't need your help. Too much self-sufficiency closes doors of opportunities for God and others to nurture us. And too much self-sufficiency means you don't know how to ask for help when you really need it. Anne Lamont, you may have heard of, is an author. And she says there's three kinds of prayers, which is a lovely way to, to, to summarize it. There's three kinds of prayers, help, thanks, and wow. Too much self-sufficiency means you're not going to pray prayers of help. But what happens as well is because you're not praying prayers of help, in the end, you find yourself having nothing to thank God for and nothing to praise God for because you've cocooned yourself into your own little world of self-sufficiency. In the end, there's no need to ask for help. There's no need to say thanks. And there's no need to express praise to God. 
because we've got it all covered ourselves. The gospel message hits at the core of all of our tendency to be self-sufficient, and we're always fighting it. No matter how many years we've been a Christian, we will find ourselves trusting in our own strength, in our own ability, and then suddenly God wakes up us like, yeah, you're just kind of doing life by yourself again, aren't you? It's like, ah, yeah, I am. That self-sufficiency leads to the kind of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. And again and again, it's only when we heed Jesus' words that he has come to call the sick and not the righteous that we begin to feel these walls that we built up of self-sufficiency break down when we acknowledge, Lord, no, I don't got it. I need help. I am broken. I need you to save me. I can't follow any of these rules that people put out there and not the ones that you have put out there. I need your saving grace. I need your sacrifice on the cross for the ways in which I've fallen short. I need your forgiveness from the wrongs that I've committed. We can't keep making more rules because it just creates an illusion that we can save ourselves. We need to get back to the gospel time and time again to be able to, with humility before God, say, God, I am the sick who needs you, who needs your grace, who needs your gospel each and every day. No matter how successful I am, no matter how great other people think I am, I still need your grace. And it is as we recognize the power of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and the power of his resurrection to defeat the power of sin and the power of his righteousness reckoned as ours through faith in him, through union with him, that we are set free from having to live under the weight of following rules. It's not that God doesn't call us to do good, that he calls us to do good in response to his love and his grace. I hope that as you go out into the world this week, that you go out into the world as those who recognize their brokenness, who are at peace with their brokenness, knowing that you have been accepted and forgiven and loved and reckoned as one with God because of Christ's sacrifice for you. Rest in him and go out and share with all those who are sick as well this grace, this love, this gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.